I heard a story about this bride and groom had their reception at their house. And after many hours of eating and drinking and dancing, they decided to play a rousing game of hide-and-go-seek. So while the groom counted to 100, the guests and the bride all hid. The groom was able to find the guests pretty quickly, but he couldn't find the bride. Everyone got a little concerned when there was no trace of her after a few hours, and eventually the hours became days, and the days became weeks, and the weeks became months. And the groom decided that maybe she'd just simply run away. So he moved on with his life. And a few years later, the housekeeper was up in the attic cleaning when she came across this rather large trunk. She decided she needed to look in it, and when she popped open the lid, she found the bride. The bride was still in her wedding dress. She still had the gold ring on her finger, except this time she had maggots in her eyes, and her face was drawn out into this long, horrible scream. Nobody was sure how she died, if it was suffocation or maybe starvation, but one thing was for sure. She was the ultimate hide-and-seek champion. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old... There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back all of our favorite listeners. Oh, you are all my favorites. You are all my special little honeybees. I just love you all. Bees, knees, cats, pajamas, the lots of you. You're just the most fabulous humans, and thank you for coming back to us. We've missed you so. We do want to thank everybody that's reached out to us, whether that be leaving reviews on iTunes. And that is Mordred Deschain, who has an incredible name, who says that we are the cat's meow. And also, everyone, thanks for reaching out to us on Twitter and joining the discussion about the topics for this episode or past episodes. Also on Facebook and Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. You can also find us online at our luxurious website. Uh, luxurious? It's luxurious. Is there velvet? No, but there are sources. Ooh, that's like velvet. It is. It's like velvet for your mind. If it were socially acceptable, I would drape myself in velvet. Velvet sources? Velvet sources. That's what George Costanza says. Now we've done our Seinfeld reference. Let's see if we can get the trifecta tonight, Jacob. Yeah, our website is justastorypod.com and there you can find our sources and some lovely artwork for each episode and supplementary videos links to our merch store merchy merch merch right where we have lots of stuff designed by samantha that's true and it's a great way to support the show on it you'll also find a link to our patreon page which is another great way to help support our show and get fun rewards like stickers digital meetups which we'll be having one soon very soon so get on board Patreon and merch allow us to do things like pay for knowledge. It's one of our uh, sticking points here at Just a Story Pod. We give you all this knowledge for free, but other people are not so generous. So we've been using your funds to get into those ivory towers and uh, steal some books. You write dirty words in them before you return them, too. I like to call it marginalia. Yeah, you and Billy Collins, real original. I draw little pictures. Oh, really? Like the monks did? Yeah, some of those were not very family no, friendly they were either. Not. <laughs> you can also reach out to us on email and send us your marginalia at justastorypod at gmail.com. Or 
If you are so inclined, you can tell us one of your favorite urban legends by calling the Urban Legend Hotline, and that number is 512-222-3375. So back to the story at hand. And what's that? Well, it has a lot of titles. Well, let's hear some. Well, it could be called The Missing Bride, mm-hmm. The Lost Bride, mm-hmm. Bride and Go Seek. Oh, that's I recognize that one. That's an Alvin Schwartz. Right. This is one of the many, many, many folk tales and urban legends included in Alvin Schwartz's Scariest Stories to Tell in the Dark. Or, you know, another name for this would be The Mistletoe Bow. Oh, and why is that? That seems a little off topic. We've been pretty bride heavy until this point. So in our legend today, we have a bride, and at her wedding or at her reception, she decides it would be fun to go play a game of hide and seek. Of course she does. So they do, and she finds the best place to hide, one where no one can find her. Is it like space where no one can hear you scream? I guess so, because no one heard her scream. Oh, no. She crawled into a large oak chest that then sealed itself shut, and she was not able to get out. Her poor bridegroom looked around for her. The guests looked around for her, the family, in what we assumed to be a lodge manse, and no one could find her. This would never happen in a respectable apartment. This is what happens when you have too much house. A nice loft. Yeah, you're not going to lose a bride. You're not going to lose a bride in the loft. Don't get trapped in the Murphy bed. (laughs) Okay, now that might happen. What's that? Just rats. Ignore it. It's like a scratching noise. It's rats. Ignore it. If you don't look at them, they won't look at you. But this is a very old legend that is still told today. Moved throughout time, through different countries, different areas throughout the world, and updated as well how does it get updated oh well just kind of moving it like it's moved to america there are versions of it in like north carolina and other different areas Mm -hmm. but really the bones of it Uh, are uh, pretty uh, much uh, the same so while this legend has been told for centuries the first time it was written down was in a poem called Ginerva, written by samuel rogers in 1822 And so this recounts the story. Like I said, the bones are pretty much the same every time. I know. I know you said that. Clever. It was clever the first time. Keep using it. And Rogers, in writing about this poem, stated, The story is, I believe, founded on fact. Though the time and the place are uncertain, many old houses lay claim to it. Right. And there are some that even display a chest and say, that's the one. That's the one right there. Because they're morbid. That's very true. While this poem was out and people did read it, it really gained huge popularity with the poem, The Mistletoe Bow, that was written by T.H. Bailey and Sir Henry Bishop and printed in 1830s. And this is in England? In England. Jolly old England. Where, to show how popular it was, in 1859, it is noted that You can hear the solemn chanting as a national occurrence at Christmas. The solemn chanting of the story of the dead bride at Christmas? Yeah, it's festive. Isn't it? There's mistletoe. And death. 
And the reason it's called mistletoe is in some versions, they find a sprig of mistletoe in the chest with her. And it usually occurs around Christmas time. So in 1862, as noted, it was one of the most popular songs ever written and must be known by heart by many readers. And so to give you a little bit of the song slash poem that became such a great Christmas tradition. I'm weary of dancing now, she cried. Here, tarry a moment, and I'll hide, I'll hide. And level, be sure thou first to trace the clue to my secret lurking place. Away she ran, and her friends began, each tower to search, and each nook to scan. And young Lovell cried, Oh, where dost thou hide? I am lonesome without thee, my own dear bride. They sought her that night, and they sought her next day. They sought her in vain, while the weeks passed away. And then there's more of the uh, upbeat Christmas tune, and then we conclude with, At length in a chest, had long laid hid, was found in the castle, and they raised the lid, and a skeleton form lay mouldering there, in the bridal wreath of the lady fair. Oh, sad was her fate in sport of jest, she hid from her lord in an old oak chest, it closed with a spring and a dreadful doom, the bride lay clasped in her living tomb. Merry Christmas! Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas! So, like, like we said, this story has been around forever, and a lot of people in a lot of places claim this story as their own. Like their own true story. Like, oh, and according to history, it happened here. Yes. We were simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Yes. And it'll be on the websites of the different halls and castles in England. Which so, is an ancient tradition, the websites. The, the website, ca- Halls is. and castles. Yeah. The monks <laughs> had to learn HTML. It's a rough day for the monks. They're really good at it. They just sit in their cells and program all day. That's so true somewhere. So one place that's noted as being the home of the Mistletoe Bride is Triverton Castle in Devon. And it's stated, but over the years there have been reports of the figure of a sad young bride wandering silently and sorrowfully through parts of the old castle. A figure that is glimpsed at the far end of a room or passing through a doorway or looking out of an ancient window, often by people who have no knowledge of the story or the fact that the castle is haunted. I saw a ghost looking out a window once. And then found out the place was haunted. Yeah, it was a weird day. Weird day to go to the math lab. And another place is Marwell Hall in Hampshire. And this place is also haunted by Jane Seymour. Oh, Jane. Janie Pooh. Janie Pooh. Poor Janie Pooh. So she was Henry VIII's wife who had the luxurious opportunity to die of natural causes rather than to be executed. Six of one, half dozen of another. That's what his wife said. So another place that is cited is Minister Lovell Hall. That Lovell sound familiar? Yes, I believe it was in the poem. Yes, it was. And so this is in Oxfordshire. And the example of their white lady, also known as the Mistletoe Bride, is even mentioned in an article in the New York Times from December 28th, 1924. The neighbors believe that a wailing figure carrying a light, which is said to flit in and out of the castle, is the ghost of the bride of one of the lords Lovell, who is suffocated on her wedding night. As the story goes, she hid in an old oak chest during the festival in a game of hide-and-seek, and the lid shut her young lord finding her body some hours later. 
Hours? Well, she wouldn't have been a skeleton in hours. Lots of hours. I guess technically it's all hours, right? Lots and lots of hours. So another place that is cited is in Brams Hill Hall in Hampshire. And so George Edward Jeans in Memorials of Old Hampshire in 1906 stated that they did have a white lady who haunts the Flower de Luce chamber immediately adjoining the gallery. And she may have been concerned with the tragedy of the mistletoe bough, which tradition attaches to Brams Hill. And so there's this great book that we found from 1898 by Shafto Justin Adair Fitzgerald called Stories of Famous Songs. And he has an extremely long essay about the providence of this story, of where it might come from. He was the original Just a Story podcaster? He was. He goes in our patron saints of Just a Story, (laughs) along with the Society for Cyclical Research and Houdini. Yeah, we've got good people in our pantheon. So he does do some exhaustive fact-finding on this apparently fictional story. And so he spoke to Sir William Cope, who owned the house at the time and had written a booklet on the subject in the 1800s. And story went. So back in the day, Miss Cope was a very young lady who had just returned home from school at the time that she was married. She proposed a game of hide-and-seek and no one wanted to play. In the book, it said everybody poo-pooed it. <laughs> Is that a quote? Poo-poo- That's a quote. Poo-pooed. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then she finally said, well, then I shall go and hide myself. I'll show you. And she was never found again. Because nobody looked for her. They were like, we said no. So Yeah, so no one looked for her. No one found her once they did decide to look for her. And the family kind of left the place dreadfully unhappy. Never really wanted to return there. I imagine it's like in old movies with like drapes all over the furniture. They cover everything in white sheets just to add to the creepiness. Two years later, Lady Cope came down and was preparing the house with the housekeeper. The housekeeper was searching for something missing. It lost to time what she was searching for. And she looked in a chest and found the wedding garments of the lost girl. But not the girl. That's a quote. This is the wedding garments. I know. I'm like, did she turn to dust? Was this like a euphemism trying to be like nice at the turn of a few centuries ago? I don't know. It's curious. So upon finding out, the family had the 40 rooms pulled down from the mansion of that wing that the body was found. We, we think the body was found. Right. And so this is a story, but a few corroborating facts that make, make it maybe not just a story is that the family did have a wing of the house torn down in the early 1700s. And also, the daughter of Sir John Cope died in a mysterious way at the age of 13 in 1730. There was a family chest that the family would not talk about. And whenever anyone asked about the mysterious accident that killed Elizabeth... They kept mum. They wouldn't say anything. Mm. I like that one. I buy it. So another interesting tale is from Exton Hall. And this is in Rutland, and it is the seat of the Knowles family. And this was a story handed down from Dorothy Knoll, who was born in 1693. She says there was merrymaking at Christmas time, and everyone was having fun, and they were doing some amateur theatricals. And in one scene, they were going to have a funeral scene. We've talked about that now, like our dolls episode, the doll funerals and stuff, and how that was not so uncommon. Back in the day, people were all about pantomiming death and whatnot 
Sure. I mean, this act- story actually was very popular among pantomime plays. All of these stories. Oh, the mistletoe bow story? Was- yeah. Okay. And so in the play, the dead girl is lowered into an old oak chest and the lid is closed. Now, when the scene is finished, they open the lid to find the girl. To find her waiting for them to open the lid and she popped out and yelled, surprise! She was dead. Oh, Sorry. That's why they have those pictures on the Tupperwares on the inside where it has the child sitting in it and the line. Don't get in it. Don't put your child in here. It's not a kennel. (laughs) That picture. Oh, we're not supposed to do that? No. I take them out. I take the labels out so we don't feel guilty about it. Oh, good. (laughs) So the family felt the judgment of God had been upon them. Prior to this, the family had been known for its kind of parties and joviality. And after this, they became very pious. I don't see the correlation, but okay. Because the girl died? Because God judged them for having all these parties and she died. Oh my God. It's terrible. I bet their parties were awesome before. (laughs) It's all fun and games till someone dies on an oak chest. (laughs) So another place that's mentioned in the book is a house that is not far from Bridgewater. Didn't have a name. And at a church near it in Bodrip, there's a monument to Edward Lovell. Okay. That's the level of mention of note in the poem. Possibly. And his wife, Eleanor, and their daughters, Maria and Eleanor. Eleanor again. One of the inscriptions on the monument discusses Eleanor, the daughter, Mm. and says, Her afflicted husband mourned her, snatched away well nigh on her wedding day by a sudden and untimely fate. She died on her wedding day, and she's a level. Possibly. Possibly related. So, a few maybe, huh, huh, I don't know, kind of, interesting points, possibly related to the real version of the story. Now, this story, like I said, is extremely popular. They did end up doing movies and plays about it. One play by Charles Somerset was produced in 1834, and it was called The Mistletoe Bow or The Fatal Chest. And in it, again, similar story, but he introduces a goblin page, which is this dwarfish, deformed, malignant imp of mischief. I like it. And also, the lady dies, not by her silliness to hide in a chest, but by the vengeance of a rejected lover, who, after she has gotten in the chest, stabs her and closes the lid. That's arguably better than suffocating to death? Is it? I don't know. Arguably? But, just wait. Wait, wait, wait. When was this written? Mid-1800s. Oh, I know it's going to happen. What? Vengeful ghost. Vengeful ghost. The spirit of the victim returns as his accuser. Spectral evidence. And the lover, with this accusation, plants a dagger in his heart. Oh, wow. They get all the way to revenge. They don't just talk about it. Oh, no. Are you sure this was British? Full drama. Wow. So getting married is a very tricky business. We did it. Once. One time. That was enough. No that more was of those. Plenty. Yeah. And apparently, one must be very careful in preparation of the wedding. One must be very careful while wedding. One must be very careful when leaving the wedding. And one must be very careful when thinking about the wedding. <laughs> so anything to do with the wedding, we need to be super careful or an imp will come and get us. Basically. Our eventual lover. 
Yes. Or we'll accidentally lock ourselves in a chest. Yes. It's all here. I have written down a an exhaustive and thorough list of superstitions from various parts of the world over various times in history that have to do with the convergence of weddings and death. Fun. They you, go hand in hand. Right. You think there would be like two because it's like, oh, weddings, they're happy. That's a good day. And it's like, you better do this shit right or you're going to die. In a chest. Or other ways. Tell me, tell me. Okay. So, a bride should not sew her own wedding clothes. If she does, she is sewing her funeral shroud. Ooh, morbid. That one is from a bohemian belief. And then this one's from China. Touching the bride's clothes after they are removed and before they are taken to her new home will result in death. It's a sign of death for a bride to wear any garment that has a vine-like figure on it. A groom who gets mud on his wedding clothes will soon be a widower. I thought the wife would just kill him and she would be a widow. That's silly. His mother would kill him. Oh, you're right. You're right. (laughs) What are you doing? Now, this one, this is very important. This is key. If a bride has not worn out her wedding underwear by the fifth year of marriage, she will be buried in them. That is such a weird tradition. I love it. It's like, don't take care of your underwear. (laughs) Are you going to die? Or maybe you just have to wear them forever. I'm not certain. Either way. Wear your dirty underwear. Wear your dirty underwear all the time. Keep away all those suitors. Yes. If a bride mistakes anything for a ghost on the night before her wedding, it is a warning. The wedding should never take place. There's no ghost hunting before weddings. No, got got it. If a dog barks when the bridal party leaves the home of the bride, she will never come home again. Kill the dog. I don't know if it means she won't visit her parents if she doesn't get... I don't know. I'm not certain. If a bride falls on her way to the church, her first child will die. I know you. Did what? you fall? No. Samantha? No. Do I need to go put a bag of Grigory around Remy's neck? No, he's fine. I didn't fall. So here's a list of unlucky persons or animals to run into on your way to your wedding. Okay. So I got my blinders on. No, no. It doesn't matter if you see them or not, just if you cross paths with them. Well, you wouldn't know. Someone would. God would know. No! So, a nun. A monk. A priest. Oh, God, no, none of these. A policeman. A lawyer. A doctor. This is everybody. A rabbit. Oh, shit. What if it's a policeman rabbit? You're screwed. No Zootopia for you. A dog. A blind person. What if it's a blind person with a service dog? Doubly fucked. Oh, shit. A lizard, which I knew. I knew that was bad luck. Or a serpent. The devil. Right. Don't run into the devil on your way to get married. Bad form. And if a minister is chosen before any other arrangement is made, it's very unlucky. For the bride to weep immediately after being married in front of the groom denotes a short marriage or an early death for one or the other. If a household pet dies during wedding preparations... Either the bride or groom will die soon. So don't kill your dog. Don't kill your dog. Kill everyone else's dog and lock your dog up and cut its voice vocal cords. Yes. <laughs> if an undertaker and a doctor come to your wedding, there will be a death in one of the wedding families within a year. So I don't get to go to any weddings? Never. This sucks. You just have to call all the undertakers and tell I them love to weddings. stay home. I know I do too. Just no undertakers. And they're cool. So that sucks. Celebrating the 20th wedding anniversary... Like, in a big way, having, like, a big to-do about it, will cause one of the married people to die. That's why we celebrate the 25th and the 50th and not, like, 20 and 40, apparently. So don't get too excited. No heart attacks. No. 
A bride who locks her door on her wedding night will always be jealous of her groom. Oh my. Put that in because it's a, like a locking thing. And it reminded me of our bride a little. I'm not sure which read in, but I'm sure we can. Let's infer. A bell ringing when no one has touched it during a wedding is a sign of death for either the bride or the groom. Why are the brides and grooms dying everywhere? This because I, I mean I did I did pick these because they're about death. In Northumberland, funeral clothes, a shroud, cap, and stockings were part of the bridal trousseau, and it showed that there was a preparation and acceptance of death that might avert the inevitable. Kind of like if you talk about it, it won't happen. Kind of like the way I think about murder. Brides who died soon after they were married were commonly buried in their wedding gowns because white clothes were preferred for burial. And these would stand in in place of the traditional shroud. So we did traditionally have brides being buried in their wedding dresses. Yes. Interesting. In Sweden, if a young girl died, a mirror would be buried in her coffin with her so that she could fix her tresses when the trumpet sounded. Gotta look good for Jesus. Apparently. I love that tradition. It's so screwed up. (laughs) Everyone knows the Antichrist doesn't fix his hair. No, he does. Everyone loves him. Or does he just, like, wake up good looking? Wakes up good looking. (laughs) Okay. People who have a unibrow as children will not live to wear their wedding clothes. Gotta tweeze that. If a wedding is announced on the same day that a married woman is buried, the bride will die within a year of her wedding. So you have to, like, check the obituaries first? You do. And if you, because that was, like, when the betrothal or, like, engagement announcements were done in church. Okay. And so it was considered bad luck to, like, mix the two. If an unmarried person attends three funerals, he or she must attend a wedding before attending a fourth funeral or they're dead. Oh, God. Having an odd number of people present at a burial is bad luck because one person will soon die because the dead man wants a companion. Poor lonely ghost. Just fixing his hair, waiting for the end times. (laughs) It's like, dude, bro. Come hang out with me, man. Wolf. Wolf, wolf. Crap! <laughs> I'm amazed there's such this long-standing tradition of death and weddings going hand in hand. Right, and it's something you have to be very aware of. It, it seems like it one misstep. But I mean, these are just superstitions. Right, so we're not going to present you now with a list of things that actually happen when these superstitions were broken, because we just don't do things like that. Welcome, new listeners. Hi! So, I have a superstition. A bride must keep at least one of her feet on the floor at all times in Irish folklore. Because if they don't, evil fairies will come and sweep them away. Evil fairies? Well, they think they're pretty and shiny and they want to take them away. Oh, build their nest out of them. Yes, basically. Okay. So, to go along with that story, I have the story of the... Bride killed while making a dramatic helicopter entrance to her wedding. What? When did this happen? This happened on December 6th of 2016. A bride plunged to her death in a helicopter crash minutes before she was set to tie the knot. She wanted to surprise her husband-to-be by making a dramatic entrance to their wedding in a helicopter. That would be dramatic. It would have been. But the groom was told that his wife-to-be had been killed while he was waiting to marry her at the altar. Oh my god, it's like a movie. It is very much like a movie. The 32-year-old nurse who was killed while wearing her wedding gown and veil planned to surprise her fiancé and 300 guests by arriving to the wedding venue in a helicopter. The wedding planner, Carlos Eduardo Batista, said, I called the pastor who was officiating the ceremony, and he went with me to break the awful news to the groom. 
He was shell-shocked and couldn't speak as he tried to understand what had happened. He was just heartbroken. Holy cow. Okay, so keep your feet on the ground, brides. Come on. Absolutely. Okay, and so here's another superstition. A woman who ruins her wedding dress on her honeymoon will know nothing but death in her married life. And here we have the story of the Canadian bride's last words before being dragged to her death by waterlogged wedding gown during a trash the dress photo shoot. It's too heavy. Oh my God. I can't anymore. It's too heavy. Those were the chilling last words of the beautiful Canadian bride who drowned in a river during a photo shoot last week after her wedding dress became soaked and dragged her under. So what's a trash the dress thing? Trash the dress photography sessions are photo sessions in which brides do like high fashion photography, like put themselves underwater. I've seen them where they're lighting them on fire, mud, paint, etc. to kind of get like an editorial look in their bridal photography. Uh, like a fun end to the wedding times is done after the wedding. Yes. So in the honeymoon period. Yes. They were taking photos near the edge of a river and she decided that she wanted to go in. And she says, I want you to try to take some photos of me floating in the water. And when the garment got wet, it became too heavy. And then the tides took her under and she drowned. Okay, so we are not trashing the dress. No, Got it. bad news. Check. We should follow all old superstitions. All of them. They all, all mean them. that we would die. Well, first <laughs> of all, you can't follow them all because they all contradict each other. We would be running in circles trying to like figure out how to do not have rain on our wedding day and have rain on our wedding day because both are good luck. You better figure that out. Or you're going to explode. Or die. You <laughs> yeah. will die. And then we have a bride should not ride a horse to or from the wedding because it is very bad luck. Wait, horses were not on your list. Of what? Oh, of things that it's bad to meet? Yeah. They're on the list of things that it's bad to ride. What else is on the list? The best man. Aww. So I'm going to update this one. It's not a horse, but it's a motorcycle. Hey, we updated it for the headless horseman. Yes. Let's keep the trend. So the headline here is... Newlywed bride dies in motorcycle crash on way to reception. And she had just married her husband and they had gone out and gotten on his motorcycle and they were bringing up the rear of the wedding party and it was mating season for deer and they were on a rural road in the mountains. Deer were not on the list either. Deer were not on the list. Deer were not even on the good luck list. Let's update the list. No one was meeting deer. I'm adding deer. Deer on the list. Deer and lizards. You're on notice. (laughs) They said they'd seen like 30 deer crossing the road. They were in the rear of the procession. And by the time the first people in the procession reached the reception venue, they met the ambulances and things going back to get them. And she died in her wedding dress in the hospital and her husband survived. Oh, well, that's terrible. It is absolutely terrible. A bride who faints will experience a death in the family. So the headline here is, Bride Dies During First Dance with Husband. Less than an hour after she and her husband were married, she crumpled in his arms during the Greek song that means, Love Me. At 36, she was dead of heart disease. During the couple's first dance, she complained of being lightheaded, and they believed that she needed sugar because she was a diabetic, but she collapsed. Uh, Wedding guests, paramedics, and doctors at a nearby hospital were unable to revive her. She'd had a previous cardiac episode in her 20s, it was a poster child, literally, for juvenile diabetes. So don't dance if you have a rare heart disease? Don't feel lightheaded. Oh, okay. Th- or don't have a heart disease. It's terrible. 
And this, this is the thing. This is very Nicholas Sparks, what I'm about to do to you here. Her husband consoles himself by reading a list of 101 reasons why I love you that she gave him on their first Christmas together. Number one, you make me smile. Number 98 is especially difficult. You're the one I want to grow old with. Oh, right in the heart. (sighs) So I have another urban legend to throw into this episode. We've just, we've got superstitions, we've got urban legends, we've got ballads, we've got poems, we've got speculation on historical origins. We're all up in our old school kind of mode today. Well, so this is the story of La Pasculita. And this is an urban legend from Mexico. There are lots of uh, women roaming around in white dresses being ghosty and things. So this is not La Llorona. This takes place in Chihuahua, Mexico. Okay. And the bridal shop La Popular. And so there's a local rumor that this bridal mannequin that is in the window of the shop is not just a mannequin. She's displayed in a normal storefront window. Her clothes are changed twice a week, different wedding dresses. But she's extremely lifelike. She has very ashen skin along with realistic hair. Legend goes that she is actually the preserved corpse of the past owner's daughter who died from a black widow spider bite right before her wedding. So they made her a bride forever? Yes. A bridal corpse. I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say, there's no way anyone's that morbid and that publicly morbid. She first appeared on March 25th, 1930, wearing a gown from the spring-summer collection. Locals thought she was very lifelike, but they also noticed she had this uncanny resemblance to the shop's owner, Pascuela Esperaz, whose daughter had recently died. And there are many stories that go around about it. You know, some saying that miracles happen at her feet, that sometimes she'll move when you aren't looking, kind of like you look and then turn and then look again and she's changed positions. Like in Doctor Who? Yes. And one story even states that a lovesick French magician fell in love with her. And he would visit her in the evening, using his magic to bring her back to life. And the two would dance through the night, drinking and celebrating their short time together. But she would always have to go back to her spot behind the glass window. So he didn't get charged with theft? Why? She came back. It's like a real-life mannequin. Remember that movie? Oh my god, yes. Kim Cattrall was never better. Probably true. (laughs) Whenever people ask the current store owner if... It's true that she's actually a corpse. He says, is it true? I really couldn't say. Why would you? So I've looked at a lot of pictures of this mannequin, and it it does look very realistic. I mean, I don't think it's a corpse, but I get it. You get thinking that it causes miracles and that it's 12 dancing princesses salsa style? I mean, I get that it looks very realistic, and if you wanted to let your imagination run wild... Be a place to go. Well, I have some really bad news for you. You don't like fun. I don't like fun. I'm going to stand here firmly in the anti-fun camp and tell you that I did a Google image search using her face. Came across something pretty interesting. The real life body. No. You don't like fun. I don't like fun. I think this is fun. Fine. I found a um, mannequin maker 
by the name of Pierre Imants. Sounds positively French. He's Dutch. Fine. <laughs> Don't like fun. Now, he was a mannequin maker, sculptor in France. Ha. And he would sculpt these incredible, like what you would see in like Madame Tussauds or like kind of almost waxwork figures for window displays. Right, because at this time, at the end of the 19th century, you started having big department stores and lots more window displays. And you needed something to wear the clothes. No matter what... Corpses. No matter what Coco says, clothes look better on people than hangers. That's why her models looked like hangers. They did. It seems to have worked for her. When we think of mannequins today, they are kind of abbreviated figures. They're human in shape, but they don't have any unique facial features or imperfections, I guess. Like, they're very generic. Not realistic. Almost non-representational human shapes. Hangers. Hangers. But at this time, the uh, goal of the people creating mannequins was to make them look believable and give them personality and je ne sais quoi. So early mannequins had glass eyes and their heads were made of wax. And they often even had wigs made of real human hair. And they were supposed to look human. Which, why this was a good marketing technique... I'm not certain, because there's no way that people are going to pass by and be like, that doesn't creep me out, right? That doesn't exist in the world. Uncanny Valley? Anyone? Yeah. Anyone? But these are beyond Uncanny Valley. No, they really do. They're sculptures. They're gorgeous. And I found a catalog with all of the different models. And they all had names. Yes. <laughs> they were posed, like one was like a circus thing, and one was a breakfast, and... Like they were in these big social scenes, all interacting with each other, and it was really cool. Sepia tone photographs. He had a great reputation, and everyone kind of knew who he was. And apparently, you either wanted an Amaz mannequin or you wanted a Seagull mannequin. Like those were the two that you wanted. And the Dutch-born Amaz gained a particular reputation for his sophisticated and refined wax figures, and was well placed to develop this particular line, having studied with the sculptor Ludovic Durand. One of the chief modelers, the Musée Grévin, the hugely popular waxwork museum in Paris that opened to the public in the mid-1880s. And he personally found the title of sculptor to be appealing. These were not mannequins, but great masterpieces of modern sculptures. Mannequin making demanded a creative intellectual impetus and as such was itself a form of art, pure and simple. So... The time that Imans was producing these extremely realistic wax-like figures was at the time that this corpse bride shows up in Mexico. Right. She hitched a ride across the Atlantic and hopped in the window around this time. Well, we've talked about briefly in the Santa Muerta episode that there was a huge push towards these like Victorian ideals in the upper crust of Mexico at the time. Right, absolutely. It's not outside of the realm of possibility that she did come from France. There's the French magician story. Well, I kind of like the French magician story, and I kind of like the idea that Pierre Mons would bring them to life and dance with them at night. I don't see why not. I don't see why he couldn't have a whole chorus girl line. It sounds fabulous. 
These are magnificent. I highly suggest you look them up. I personally think after viewing all of the various makes and models of his mannequins that she is a Simone, I believe. There's also a possibility that she is a Lynette. Sounds like Sex in the City. <laughs> I'm a Lynette. I'm that corpse bride. Which corpse bride are you? So I'm going to have to say that the story of the corpse bride is probably just a story. I hate you. You hate fun. I hate fun. Googling mannequins is fun. Uh huh. And up. how? Shut up. It's fun. So it is without a doubt that for some odd reason, the idea of weddings and death are very closely tied in our subconscious. I feel like this is a take my wife, please joke waiting to happen. Like, oh, last night is a free man. Death is next. Might as well be dying. (laughs) Sure. So ignoring that entire school of humor and moving forward. If you can call it humor. With taste and dignity. With our brand of humor. Yes. You're welcome. I apologize. Let's move on to some literary critique and symbolic discussion. As you do. As we do. So I read an essay about Angela Carter's writing. She's a fiction writer, and apparently the bridal gothic was very central to her body of work. Yes, and our story is very much a English gothic tale. Correct. Let's begin our discussion of the bridal gothic with a discussion of the bridal. What's up with that? The bridal. I mean, if you think about it, it kind of is the opposite of death. Right. It's the beginning of a new family, beginning of a new life. White, purity. Okay, white Queen Victoria. That's that's just Queen Victoria. That is not an ancient thing. She wore a white dress and everybody wanted to be like her. She wore a white dress exactly once and then wore black forever. She was mourning. Forever. She slept with a death cast of his hand at night. Okay? She was mourning. That's too much. It's too much, Vicky. She's like your spirit animal. Hang it up, Vicky. No. Probably. (laughs) But even if we only wear white because of Queen Victoria, we still believe that the wedding dress, the wedding gown, has some kind of transformatory power. It is a dress that most people only wear once in this day and time. Till you ruin it the next day and drown. Yes, don't do that. It's bad luck. Drowning. Um, So there is this idea that's very pervasive among brides-to-be that on your wedding day, you should look extra pretty special. This is not a unique idea. This is something that is ubiquitous in our culture. It's not that crazy. You're going to see everyone you know. You're going to be the center of attention. There's be pictures that forever. will be up forever. Unless you're us. I think we have one wedding picture up in our whole house. We like our kids better. And we were so fat. We were fat. So... We have faith that if we put on this garment, it's going to do magical things to us, and we are going to be the most beautiful, radiant creature that has ever existed, and all of our blemishes will go away, all of our fat will disappear, and our hair will magically be in that helmet with the two curls on the side that every girl wore to prom in 1997. Wedding dresses are magic. Where does that idea come from? It's not an ancient idea. All of the bridal magazines that are in the newsstands? Absolutely. That's actually perfect. Really? It's not like an old tradition? No. That's definitely something that's marketed. Oh, I guess the white dress has only been around for a hundred and something years. Right. And most people could not afford to have a dress that they only wore once until there was disposable income. 
That's why you have to wear your panties out. In five years, or you'll be buried in them, apparently. Remember that. That's key. It's really not, but I think it's interesting. So marketing the wedding. Marketing the wedding as a thing to buy, a thing to consume, and a thing to be lived is something that's really been done so quickly. It's like boy and girl colors. It's something that's happened within, you know, living memory. That's only about 80 years old. Right. And the idea of buying a wedding and the amount that people spend on it is about the same age. So what you get when you are looking through Pinterest and stalking the knot and putting together your wedding binder is a collection of items that you want to purchase or purchase materials for and make. Yet what we believe we're doing is expressing our own personality and expressing our own desires for that day. Shabby chic. Shabby chic. I'm a shabby chic bride. Is apparently everyone's personal style. I'm a very non-traditional bride, but we're not reflecting ourselves. We're reflecting our environment. And our environment is saturated with commercial images of what romance and fantasy Getting that picture-perfect storybook wedding. Right, and that's something that's discussed in Sharon Bowden's essay, Consuming Pleasure on the Wedding Day, The Lived Experience of Being a Bride. She talks about how a lot of the brides that she interviewed use statements like showtime, roll camera, or action, or the stage was set. It's all about staging an event, and it sort of removes the experience from the personal and puts it in the performative. I get that, because we always talk about our wedding like, that was the best party ever. Right, and people always look at us like, what do you mean? Like, we had so much fun. It was a great party. All of our friends were there, and there was food and drink and a band, and it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. It was the most fun. We were the first of our friends to get married, too, so everyone was like, what is this? (laughs) People weren't sick of it yet. It was awesome. Get married first. Don't do that. Actually, it's terrible advice. Don't Um, get married. It's terrible. I mean... I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got this. I love you. I love you too. We've got this like performative stage. We've got this performative space set, and we are projecting out the image that we've been told we need to project through consumption, and we are coding ourselves as brides. So as we're standing in our dress with its magic transformative power, we are sending out this message that's almost subliminal. It's emotionally charged and instinctual, and people are reading the code at a non-intellectual level. You know what that means. You don't have to think about it. Right. However, Angela Carter is not going to let us just stand there and look pretty. She has things to say. The romantic image, tool and half at a bride in her crackling virginal carapace, clasping pneumonious lilies, disguises her real function as the supreme icon of woman as a sexual thing and nothing else whatever. Carapace. I love it. Damn, Angela. I just thought I looked pretty. (laughs) She says, a wedding dress is like a gift-wrapped girl. It's as though the wearer is only existing in transition. It's the greatest day of her life, and she's gift-wrapped for it. And she's passing from her father to her husband. It's only at the moment of that passage that she is allowed to be anything at all. And this is in a completely artificial manner. So what she said there is really interesting, and I think we have to unpack it a little bit. Let's do it. So you're gift-wrapped. Got that part? Got it. That's why the bows are there. That's why you're pretty. And why the fairies are coming to get you. Be careful. One foot on the floor at all times. 
Both feet. One. Just one. Oh, just one. As long as one's there, you're good. So you could ride a scooter. Don't ride a scooter on your wedding day. That's bad luck, too. <laughs> I'm non-traditional bride. That's right. You are, Jacob. You're gift-wrapped. You're passing from your father to your husband. Yes, I have given my cows and chickens. Where are the goats? One goat. Black Phillip. Black Phillip. So you are being transitioned. The ownership is being handed over from your father to your husband. This is going to be one of our favorites. What is that weird space between? Hashtag liminal. Hashtag liminal space. That's right. So you're in liminal space on your wedding day. Now, for people looking at why women have always loved weddings and wanting to know why weddings have always been so important to women throughout the ages, etc., I believe this is a very interesting answer. It is the one day where nobody really owns you. I don't think it's the only answer, but I think it's a component. I think that's true. It's a celebration of the domestic sphere in a public space. I think that's actually one of the other answers. But I think this is very psychologically interesting. Because from the time that your father gives you away at the altar to the time that your marriage is consummated, you're kind of your own person for like all of seven hours or whatever. It's, you know, Cinderella goes to the ball. I like that. I think it's really interesting. And then you get a pumpkin. I hope you don't get a pumpkin. If there's a pumpkin in your room when you go upstairs with your husband on your wedding night, run away. Nothing good will happen. He's the headless horseman or something. Even if he has a motorcycle and not a horse. He's Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater and he's going to put your ass in a pumpkin shell. Run away. But while Angela Carter says that this is a completely artificial manner, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that especially now since we marry people we choose to and it's something that we put off until we've had time out of the idea of your father's house to your husband's house is not so entrenched. I think that the wedding has become something less daunting and less dark and scary. But it does still represent a big life change. Absolutely. Like even if you've been living with this person, you are now committed. You cannot just kind of walk out the door. It's on the grid. Yeah, you're on the grid. And that's why I think that the image of the bride, despite all the other cultural changes that have come into the conversation with marriage, retains its subliminal power. So we have that image of the bride, the beautiful blushing bride, Mm -hmm. but not in our story. She doesn't stay the beautiful blushing bride for very long. She soon turns into the molded corpse. Right. That's interesting because when we take the symbol of femininity and future familial bliss and motherly duty and nurturance and fidelity, all those things that the gown is supposed to symbolize, and we put it on a body that is deemed disgusting or wrong, we've created the ultimate taboo. Uh, You've perverted that idea. And one example of that from literature is Miss Haversham from Great Expectations. I think I was forced to read that in high school. I think you probably were too. Miss Haversham is jilted, and she gets old and continues to wear her wedding dress. And It turns yellow and ucky, and she turns yellow and ucky, and then the whole thing is just a pretty horrific image when Pip comes across Miss Haversham. Something that should not be. It's not this beautiful young bride. Right. So the bride earns her status as an extreme of a gendered object that is worthy of the collective gaze and attention of her audience by being pure and by being empty and blank. She's a romantic ideal that is untainted. But when we contaminate this vision with putrefaction and decay and rut, we have stripped away all of the 
future meaning. We have taken away the life-giving nature of the marriage union. So the entire idea of what the bride represents is flipped on its head. That's why it's horrific. And throughout the course of modern literature, you will see things like the veil traditionally worn by brides being conflated with a shroud. A death shroud? Yes. And that's why I thought that particular superstition was interesting. A bride who sews her own wedding clothes is sewing her shroud. And so many women being buried in their wedding dresses. Mm -hmm. So marriage is the death of that maiden. It is the death of innocence. She is coming into adulthood. She is becoming a matron, fully formed adult. Death of innocence. Through the magic of penis, apparently. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's the one that makes you an adult. Magic penis. Hashtag magic penis. Have fun with that. It is a death in a way. That child is going away. That is the death of childhood. We can do it in a day. We can do it with a symbol. But it's also very hopeful. Right. It's a positive change. But it's also become sort of eroticized because we know that she's pure in theory, especially in Victorian literature. We know that the bride is meant to be virginal and pure. But we also know that there is a defilement coming. It is imminent. Magic penis. Magic penis is coming to ruin the day. But it's done within the context that deems it socially acceptable. But we can't help but be a little titillated by it. And so we're going to see that again and again, that imminence of defilement that is associated with virginal purity and weddings is going to be played on by a lot of people who write about grotesque or gothic brides. And it's sort of a symbol of the defilement that happens on the wedding night where the innocence dies to have all of these decaying brides who have been so robbed. They don't get that defilement (laughs) but no they don't get that that change that positive change to the next life step oh no i don't think that that's it i think that some people would say like they should be this way always we don't want them to change oh like retaining their purity Mm -hmm. but then when you try to stall life it's an unnatural process at this point because they're in that liminal state you can't stay in the liminal state and when you try to pause there something unnatural happens So those are the grossest brides we're going to talk about today, right? Doubt it. Okay. (laughs) So you can even see these like Victorian ideas of death and weddings and brides and like like Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. Cute little movie. Yeah, I love it. It's great. But there are several cultures around the world that do celebrate the betrothal of corpses or the dead. Come the fuck on. Oh, I've got a bunch. No. Okay. So one of the most widely documented versions of this is in China. So traditionally, an older son should marry before the younger brothers. That's just fair. But unlike in our traditions where you have to like dance with a mop or broom here. You need to explain that. You can't just drop that on people and leave it alone. So if in Cajun culture... It's also an African-American tradition. If a younger sibling marries before the elder sibling, the elder sibling should dance with... I thought it was a broom, but I've seen mops. It's both. Traditionally, it's a broom, but you know, we see mop in a bucket. In a bucket um, at the reception of their sibling, or they might have to remain unmarried forever. But in this tradition, if the older brother is dead... Then what, what is one to do? Exactly. So if a restless spirit of an older brother is dead, 
then he can cause a lot of tribulations to the family. He can cause illness or bad luck. So he can't just be like, okay, you're the oldest now because I'm dead. That's cool. No, of course not. Okay. Especially in these strong family traditions. And so Diana Martin writing about this said, ghosts with families are liable to direct their discontent within the family circle. And it is here that ghost marriage becomes operative. So in order to appease the unmarried spirit, we should just marry him to something? Yeah, we gotta marry him off. To... A ghost. Another ghost. Two ghosts. Yeah. Okay. And so this will allow the younger brother to marry and not have the vengeance of the deceased older brother. So where does one find a ghost? To marry off to your older brother. And how does one know that they're going to get... Is there an okay Cupid for a ghost? Kind of. Okay. So where do you find them? Well, in 2015, it was reported that 14 female corpses were stolen in one village in Shanxi province. Why do you need the corpse? They will bury both of them together so that they can be eternally together. So this isn't just a spiritual process. There is an actual corporeal component that must be dealt with. Like You actually have to go and touch the corpse and move the corpse to be with the other corpse, and that's part of it? Yes, especially in some traditions. You know, it's different in different areas. It's very literal. Oh, yeah. Okay. So one researcher in China at Shanghai University carried out a field study on ghost weddings in Shanxi, between 2008 and 2010, and he was saying that the, this is becoming popular and the price of a corpse or the bones of a young woman had risen sharply. Do the bones have to be of unmarried women? Yes, of course. Because those married women would be already buried in their familial plot. Okay. And so he said that at the start of the study in 2008, prices would range... From about $4,500 to $7,500. And at the end of the study, the corpses would go for about $15,000. That's a car. And this practice was outlawed in 2006. Doesn't seem to be slowing anything down. No, because in 2016 in Shanxi province, three men were detained after the body of a woman was found in their vehicle by traffic police. Investigation led them to uncover a grisly sequence of events, as the BBC puts it. Ghastly. To where a man allegedly promised this woman that he would find them grooms, but instead killed them so he could sell their corpses. It's like night doctory. So, obviously, the men are restless, women are just... SOL, I guess, that they die unmarried. They're not getting a corpse groom. Oh, no. Women can be married, too. It is more common for men. But for women, if you die single with no children, you'll have no one to worship and tend to your spirit. Okay. Because traditionally, your spirit tablet is placed on your husband's altar, home altar. Okay. And now this isn't a problem for men because the male children can have their tablet placed on their father's altar. But women have nowhere to go. Insult to injury at this point. Like women have nowhere to go. Like in a literal sense, there's no spiritual, like even after death, you don't get a place. You just have to wander around and wait for some man to take you in. Even after you're dead, this is not fair. This is not fair at all. Sorry. 
you just take your magical penis and go be whole somewhere else. So a ghost marriage can ensure that a woman's spirit can be worshipped by bringing her into the family of a husband who has been chosen for her after her death. So it's a desirable arrangement for both male and female spirits, in, in theory. They're going to get something out of it both ways. In Taiwan, an unwed girl's spirit might be married to her sister's husband, and her memorial tablet would then be placed in the familial shrine. That seems fine. Yeah. No corpse stuff there. Not to my knowledge. Okay. So if a fiancé dies before the woman gets married, she can use a white rooster as a stand-in. The bird will ride in the bridal carriage. Are you shitting me? Oh, yeah. She marries a cock. Magical cock. Magical Mm. white cock. And then post-ceremony, the bird accompanies the bride to formal dealings with the groom's family. These cases are really rare because it places this really restrictive requirements on the woman because she has to move in with the dead husband's family and take a vow of celibacy. But then she's taken care of in theory. In the afterlife. Well, and in real life too. Oh, okay. Oh my God, to go live with your in-laws. You live with your in-laws and a rooster forever. Sounds like fun. Oh my God. The Cantonese people will often marry deceased men and women as well. And this will be arranged early enough that the funeral rites and the marriage rites can occur at the same time, including the m- moving the bride from her grave to her husband's grave to symbolically finalize the marriage. So you have a tomb as a bridal chamber? Yeah. And this actually is not legal in China. It was outlawed around the time of Chairman Mao, but that didn't stop it. <laughs> So in Japan, there are similar traditions. Okay. There especially were similar traditions that changed over time. I'm sure when the emperor was no longer God, had to get on the the CV and be like, hey, by the way, guys, not divine. Might have noticed those giant explosions. They made me say this. Well, it was related to the wars. Mm -hmm. So before um, all of the warring of Japan in the 30s and 40s, they really had very traditional Chinese-like ghost weddings. And they actually didn't have them for that long. There's no record of it happening prior to the late 1800s. And if it's mentioned, it's mentioned as a Chinese tradition. So if that had been America, over. we would be like, it's an ancient tradition going back all the way to the 1800s. That counts. <laughs> but during that time, there were so many casualties to war. And there were so many men that needed to have a ghost wedding mm-hmm. in order to have a happy, fulfilled spiritual afterlife that there were not enough female ghosts or women in general to marry to all of these Bachelors. Deceased bachelors. <laughs> and so they decided to marry them off to dolls. Just when I thought this episode couldn't get any creepier. Continue. So the most common ghost marriage in Japan, especially at the time, was between a ghost man and a bride doll. They would use a bride doll at the wedding ceremony, and they'd place a photo of the dead man in a glass case with the doll to represent their union. This would stay up for 30 years. And after that 30 years, the man's spirit would be considered to have passed on to the next realm. And then after that, the doll is then respectfully burned in a ritual fire or floated out to sea. So one researcher states that during the period of curation, 
Many people claim that the doll begins to resemble the deceased near the middle of the curation period, before eventually reverting back to its original appearance at the end. I have so many questions. One, do the dolls have personality or are they just kind of doll? Doll. So they don't have a backstory. They don't have any kind of... No, you can buy them at a temple, but they're also mass marketed. You can just pick one up at the store. How big is the doll? Is it person-sized? No, it's fairly small. Practical. I like it. Do you have to do anything while the doll is in your house or does it just hang out? I'm not sure. I think that you're honoring the dead. Okay, so you're doing your, your general, what you'd be doing anyway, but you're just including the doll. And then we, we burn it? Or let it float down. It's, it's a ritualistic ending. So it's like a funeral. It's like a pyre right. or a burial yeah. at sea. It's not just a throw it on the heap kind of right. thing. Right. No, definitely. It's, it's very respectfully done. And this is just as good as marrying a real, like a, a person ghost. Yes. It keeps the ghost husband calm and prevents him from causing unrest in his family, just like in China. This is certainly better than killing women. Like in China that we just heard about. Definitely. Definitely. I think that is a, an outlier case. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but it's better than that. But uh, we do have numerous reports of, of grave robbing for it. And so you may say, oh, those Chinese and Japanese, but hey, look in France. <laughs> hey, look in France. They're weird in France. Tell me about France. So in the French Civil Code, there is a law that states that the President of the Republic may, for grave reasons, authorize the celebration of the marriage. One of the future spouses is dead. Is this like some crazy Napoleonic kind of thing? Is this a when? No, it's much more recent. Oh. So the story behind it began in 1959 when a dam just north of the French Riviera collapsed and killed 423 people. Okay. And when Charles de Gaulle visited the site, a bereaved woman, Irene Jodard, pleaded to be allowed to marry her dead fiancé. So on December 31st of that year, the French Parliament passed the law permitting posthumous marriage. Now, they must prove that they were intending to marry, and they have to get permission from the family. They do not inherit the deceased possessions, but... If the woman is pregnant at the time of her fiancé's death, then the child does become the heir. Well, that's clever. And so this does still happen to this day. It's a rare occurrence, but it does happen. And this isn't on the books here. You can't do this here. Not legally. (laughs) Two ethnic groups in Sudan practice some interesting ghost wedding traditions. Oh, these I know a little bit about. So the Noir ethnic group has to where if a man dies without male heirs, a kinsman frequently marries a wife in the dead man's name. So if they were to have children after this... They would be the sons or daughters of the deceased. Right. Even though the biological father... Is not the deceased. Exactly. Now, this is a huge problem for, for younger brothers, for children who are born later in the line. Because in order to have children to their own name or of their own name, they have to earn another dowry. Like they have to go out and have another wife, which takes years of work. So what happens is you have this domino effect, this sort of uh, exponential problem 
where a lot of men are not allowed to marry in their own name because they're married in their brother's name and then they leave no male heirs. So the dead man's wealth goes to the brother, but then it's expected for the brother to use that wealth to pay the dowry to marry his brother's wife. (laughs) And then also if the man dies in a feud, there's also a dowry that is used. And a lot of times that's can be paid by that family. So kind of blood money Mm. to pay the dowry. And so you listed some of the obvious problems that can come up, but it also helps establish the passing on of wealth within the community as well. And so that is an important purpose of it. Right. There are places in Nepal where polyandry is practiced for the same reason. Brothers will marry one wife. So you might have five brothers married to one wife. And this happens so that the family estate does not have to be divided among the five brothers because land is farmable, arable land is hard to come by. And so this keeps everything in the family. When you have fewer disputes over heredity, you're able to pass wealth on more easily. Yeah, and in a rare case in the Noir culture, you do have a woman of wealth who can marry a deceased man so that she can keep her wealth and power because traditionally they are not the holders of wealth. It's the men Mm -hmm. that possess it so there may not be a living husband and but she can pass it on to her male children so in the atut culture in south sudan it's very similar to the nuer culture but i saw i just had this interesting note that if a man dies with a living daughter the daughter may adopt a male role and take a wife to provide an eventual heir for the deceased man And when asked why they do this, they say that it's related to maintaining the family name of the deceased man. And there is some linguistic evidence to that. Linguistic. So the word for ghost marriage in their language can also mean to hold up straight, saying that the central notion expressed in ghost marriage per se is the intention to hold the name of a man straight so he will stand or be remembered. So, America. Yes. America. America. We're not letting other people have all the fun. There's got to be some version of this here. If I know us, there's been a moment. We've had our moment. Mormons. Mormon moment. Yes. Okay. I knew. Thank you. They brought it home for us. We don't talk about them nearly enough. No, we don't. Let's hear about it. Tell me. So you know that Mormons can proxy baptize people? Yes, I think I know that. And so that's highly controversial because they'll just baptize everybody to bring them into the Mormon faith. There's a lot more about that. You're welcome to go read on it. But they'll do any any old celebrity like Elvis. Has Elvis been? Yes. Pro- <clears throat> okay. I love it. Thomas Jefferson. I'm sure he's grateful. And someone else they've proxy baptized is Sally Hemings. <gasps> Scandalous. So Sally Hemings is, is Jefferson's mistress. Yeah. So he had many children with. And so they can also do proxy weddings okay and i'm just now putting together that i was like but jefferson was already married and i'm realizing that mormons say why just get married once get married all the time so they're like he could have had two wives and that would have been totally legit 
Right, and so they have done many proxy sealing ceremonies. So they proxy sealed Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson because America. Yes. Okay. You're welcome. Oh, TJ, you sly dog. There are a lot of reasons for these ghost marriages, but there are some just trends that go through it. You know, it's usually related to keeping families together, making sure there are heirs to people, making sure that wealth continues on. But also the spiritual aspect of making sure the soul or the spirit is is happy in the afterlife. It's not lonely. Yeah. That's a nice idea. As long as you aren't stealing corpses, it's a nice idea. Or killing women. Don't do that. Don't do that, you guys. Don't do that, guys. Get a doll. A doll. Jeffrey Dahmer would have been so much better off with a doll. But not a corpse doll. Not a corpse doll. We have too many rules. We don't like fun. So we have this really weird idea, really unusual for an idea of the tomb as a burial chamber. In a lot of these situations, people are being put together with their assigned ghost bride or groom in the ground. And that's sort of the consummation of their marriage. Right, especially in China. Oh, contraire, mon frere. That's France. Closer. We are big on this idea in gothic literature in England and America, we love this idea. Of course. It's like we talked about. It's disturbing. It's turning these normal traditions that everyone understands subconsciously just completely on its head. So let's talk about why that is and give you a few examples. So this is from a paper called Dying with a Vengeance, Dead Brides and Death Fetish in T.L. Bellows by Diane Hovelaire. So Diane states that In the marshy grounds along the Seine, bodies of the poor who had been buried without coffins simply appeared in the spring as if in full bloom, like perennials that no one remembered having planted. In London along the Thames, a similar problem occurred, and it is the meaning of these dead but suddenly resurrected bodies emerging and competing for space in the major urban capitals of Europe that I think provides us with the first clue to Beto's concern with the dead cities, in particular with a strangely persistent motif of dying brides and women clutching dead babies. Why is that such a motif? Because this time there was an assault on sort of the cult of Mary, if that makes sense. There was a rise in Protestantism that had really changed the cultural landscape of England and America. Central to Catholicism, Throughout Catholicism, you had ideas of maternity, virginity, antibody, spiritualism, eternal life, and the rejection of the flesh. And so this is of central importance to Catholicism. The virgin mother, virgin birth. So to be Protestant, we can't believe in any of that. We can, but we just need to take it down a notch. Just not quite so cool with the Mary. We need to, Mary cannot quite be your homegirl if we're going to be Protestant. She can be fine. We can like her and appreciate her, but we don't need her to be a goddess. Why is there a woman without the original scent on her? Like, why is that a thing? That doesn't exist. Women are all terrible. Come on, guys. Get with the program. Yeah, of course. So Protestantism takes the Mary worship and it says, just like, turn it down. Like, not to 11. But secularism, this burgeoning idea of secularism, does need to demonize it. Yeah, I cannot believe you believe in that. We need to not only take away the divinity and bring it down to a more tempered understanding, 
we need to go in there and muddy it all up, muck around a bit. Muck around in the river mud with all the dead bodies popping up like perennials. Yes. I love that imagery. You would. (laughs) No, it's deeply disturbing. So in order to secularize society, we have to commit a full assault on the ideas of maternity and the separation of spirit from body and virginity, purity, all of these things. So like the almost worship of it. We almost need to deify the opposites. And so we do. We see a lot of like elevation of the corpse is beautiful and elevation of the rotting bride and the love object is deteriorating and things like that throughout this time period in literature. And a lot of that has to do with anxiety that people were feeling because purgatory had been taken away from them. No more waiting room. No more waiting room. And so for years, we'd been able to kind of work with our ancestors. We've been able to tap into the afterlife a little bit by kind of praying for our deceased loved ones. We would have masses said. We would... All of the things your grandmother still does. You know, those things. But when we get the Protestant Reformation and widespread Protestant belief throughout Europe, we start to see those things go away. And people are like, nope, once they're dead, they're dead. Sorry. No more. You can't do anything anymore about it. And now there's just the living and there's just the dead and there's no more interaction. So why has death become venerated so much? Because there's the world of the living and there's the world of the dead. And that's not interesting. What's interesting is when those two worlds rub up against one another. The liminal place. The liminal place. Yes, that's correct. And in these moments where death intrudes upon life or life intrudes upon death, there's something revelatory happening. It's a very human moment. It's a very human moment. And we will revisit over and over again how looking upon death as a living person creates a sublime and in a Kantian sense brings us closer to the sublime. So, and this becomes especially prevalent on the bodies or through the bodies of women because women's bodies have a special social and cultural significance in the Christian mythos. The holy chalice. Or the harbinger of original sin. Oh, that too. Damn it. Right. So we have this cognitive dissonance about how to deal with a female body already. They either bring Jesus or they bring all the evils of the world. Right. Or both. Or both. And that's very difficult for people. You know, the female body is seen as like a diminutive form of the male body. It is seen as literally embodying the curse of Eve with menstruation. But in death, when that woman's life ceases to be, the threat is extinguished and the curse is fulfilled. And she has atoned for her womanliness. And then she becomes a blank canvas for male desire to be projected upon. Definitely makes me think of all the dead women in our murder ballads episode. Absolutely. And so then we come back to this idea of the tomb as the bridal chamber. Ah, the shared tomb. And this is something you can see even in Shakespeare with like Desdemona and Othello. But it permeates a lot of Victorian literature And some examples include Lucy and Dracula by Bram Stoker and Catherine and Wuthering Heights and Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe. So in thinking about these relationships between the living and the dead, the tomb can be defined as an intimate space and the corpse as the ultimately passive and 
ultimately vulnerable love object. God, it's disturbing. But it's so there. Like, it's so evident in these texts. Oh, yeah, and Desdemona and Othello. Right. He says that he will not mar Desdemona's beautiful corpse. He wants to preserve her in her youthful perfection. And he defines the corpse as an object of desire. And this occurs again and again. There's a stillness that can be equated with a sort of sculptural artistic beauty, which is a beauty that's created only to be looked upon and drawn into fantasy. When we see a beautiful sculpture, it is purely existing for our gaze, for us to project our own thoughts and emotions onto. And so the beautiful female corpse is purely there for the male gaze. In theory, yes. That's where we're going. Isn't this all in theory? Yes. We are in a purely theoretical space. Come with me now. So the value of the personality is completely absent. It can be stripped away. There's always been a problem reconciling woman's individuality with her position as needing to be dominated. And so when the personality is gone, the tension's gone. You don't have to deal with that woman. (laughs) Right. You just have this body. The physical aspects. Yes. Othello says, be thus when thou art dead, and I will love thee after. Dude had some problems. He had so many problems. That moop. Ah, that moop. To Seinfeld. This intimate space, once defined by lust and love, is transformed into a sepulcher, providing a narrative tomb in which the audience can bury the innocent and the fallen. At the center of this tomb lies the remains of the sweetheart, the trusting and innocent young woman who gives herself to love and reaps ghastly consequences. Why? Because in the play, if you weren't forced to read that one in high school... No one should be forced to read Shakespeare. You should want to read Shakespeare. Hey, I thought it was great. It Um, is great. But he, he kills her. Spoiler alert. Spoilers. So this imagery is something that's picked up heavily in Gothic and Victorian literature. And it's evident even in the artwork of the time. So in the painting The Nightmare by... Henry Fasili. Yes. And that is when you see... Like if you Google sleep terrors or night terrors, that's one of the ones that's going to come up. We see the beautiful corpse or the woman lying in distress. And she is coated sexually from the thin gown which reveals her body to her parted lips... In her terror, she becomes an alluring object, sexualized by fantasy, corpse-like, and vulnerable. Makes me think of the painting of Ophelia. Right, but she doesn't have a demon sitting on her chest. She does not, but she is like this dead body that's beautifully represented Mm -hmm. in this thin, gauzy gauzy dress. Yes, common artistic motif of the moment. So in death, Desdemona becomes a symbol of perfect, incorruptible chastity and fidelity and the abused figure of the perfect wife. So in the 17th and 18th century, according to Felipe Eres, the little death of sexual pleasure is confounded with the final death of the body. Sweet is death who comes like a lover. The confusion between death and pleasure is so total that the first does not stop the second, but on the contrary heightens it. The dead body becomes, in its turn, an object of desire. And you know what this makes me think of. What's that? Keats. Mm. Always with the Keats. Longing for death. Ode to melancholy. And his like conflating of the moment just before a kiss with the moment just before death and all of these things. Go read Keats. Go. Go. Go forth and read Keats. Pause. Go read it. Pause. Go read it. In, in Wuthering Heights, you have Heathcliff who is obsessed with Catherine after her death. And... 
when the ground around her tomb is dug up to put her husband in it. Heathcliff's not her husband. Spoiler alert. He goes and pays the grave digger, says, don't so much put him here beside her as take him somewhere else and throw him in the river. Throw him in the river. I don't know that he really says throw him in the river, but he means it. While you're down there, why don't you just uh, lift that lid for me so I can take a peek at old girl? Now, this is 18 years later. Oh. Wants to see old girl. So, oh, my. So he says to to the grave digger, when you dig my grave, dig it shallow so I can feel the rain. No, he doesn't say that. He says, lift the lid. I need to catch a peek. And then he goes and reports on what he has seen and says that she is improbably preserved and as beautiful as the day she was put in the ground. And there we get that like idea of incorruptibility. She's incorruptible. Yeah. She's a saint. She's a saint. Right. She's perfect. Heathcliff is legitimizing his continued ardor for Catherine's remains in their present form. When Nellie asked, and if she had been dissolved into the earth, or worse, what would you have dreamt of then? Heathcliff brazenly answers, of dissolving with her and being more happy still. Such romantic. Mmm, so Byronic. Isn't it Byronic? Don't you think? No, no, I don't. A little too Byronic. The proclamation does not follow the previous claim of a mental peace inspired by a glimpse of Catherine's preserved face. He would be more happy to dissolve into Catherine's decomposed ooze than to lay beside her intact remains, as he could then truly be united with her fleshy form in a way that the living can never achieve, and thereby confirming his place as the better lover, an inextricable part of his fictitious romance forever. So they can truly become one together by decomposing together. Yeah. That is romantic. Yeah. Should have put that in my wedding vows. Oh, God. We did not write our own wedding vows. (laughs) I want to decompose into your ooze. Your mom would pass out. She would swoon. Clutch her pearls. So by not only wanting to retain control over her physical remains, but to actually be part of them, Heathcliff's really expressing a lot of, well, one, angst, but two, desire. He needs to control and possess this physical relic so he can project his fantasies on it. And then we move to Dracula. Of course we do. I love Dracula. Can't get more gothic romance than that. No, you can't. So we have Lucy. Ah, Lucy. When she's alive, she is a coquette. She's described as kind-hearted coquette who through the malicious interference of the titular villain is denied her matrimonial legitimacy that she is due so the coquette was a total menace oh still is Mm -hmm. she was dangerous and kind of married the ideas of theatricality and power Mm, yeah definitely and she was to quote a connoisseur of the male form oh my male beauty And so she was sort of a traitor. A traitor? To her gender. Oh. The passivity and docile femininity that made women so lovable. I thought you meant because she became a vampire. Well, she does that too. But in theory, not Lucy, but just the, the theoretical coquette. So she could wreak havoc on the whole social system. She could throw everything out of order by being promiscuous and demanding or hinting. Hinting, merely hinting at what she wants or that she might like it. No, that's so unladylike. Unladylike. You threaten the species and our patterns of procreation. Away with you. But 
Lucy has a chance. She can get married. Magic penis can reform the fallen coquette. Thank God. It would legitimize her. It would protect her reputation and remove the social threat of inappropriate behavior. Put her in the right social order. Yes. In the kitchen, barefoot pregnant. Thank God. Someone said it. Okay. However, she's denied the opportunity to marry the man that she's chosen. Because she's killed. Yeah. Is she? Is she? Is she killed? Spoilers. No, she's vampired. I know. <laughs> Just once. She's only killed, she has the first death. Then she's killed again. Well, sh- 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 we're not there yet. Spoilers. We're building to something here. She's denied the opportunity for legitimacy. So in death, she has to become this caricature of wantonness, of pure, unbridled sexuality. She threatens the moral uprightness of any man who is near her. And she becomes this temptress monster. Yes. In a very true sense. Oh, very, very full of lust. Coming in dreams. Dirty, dirty dreams. Dirty, dirty dreams. Or are they dreams? After her death, the undertakers wax poetic. Oh, and the mourners. Mourners also. About what a beautiful corpse she is. Such a beautiful corpse. Arthur touches and kisses her and does not want to leave her. It's her fiancé. And they say that death had given her back her beauty. Oh, so nice. Mm-hmm. But then she goes back in vamp berserker mode, and she's called radiantly beautiful, with a voluptuous smile and voluptuous wantonness. Voluptuous voluptuousness. Mm-hmm. So lacking the context of marriage and childbearing, her sexuality becomes raw and unmanageable. And she doesn't have that husband and his magic penis. To make it okay. Yeah. So despite their own feelings of lust, the vampire hunters vilify her. Arthur says, I will not mutilate her body. I will not mutilate her corpse. You couldn't make me do it. She's too perfect. I won't. You must. Okay. (laughs) That's exactly how it goes. Take the stake. So her second death involves penetration by the betrothed. Well, there's some symbolism for you. I'm not going into that. We're not going to talk about it, right? We're just going to let that... Just read between the lines. Linger. It was a stake through the heart. And it fixed her and made her sexuality manageable. Hooray. Read what you will. What would Freud say? That's all I'm saying. Freud would say, her voluptuous wantonness is making me feel itchy pants. And then the ultimate necro bridal experience, Annabelle Lee. Also by the ultimate gothic writer, Edgar Allan Dark romantic. Oh, so Poe says, Poe says Annabelle Lee was a child, and he was a child narrator, not Poe, probably Poe. Cousin. Cousin. And it's this like innocent, pure romance between the two of them, and then she dies, and then her family comes to take her away. Not my sweet Annabelle Lee. Yes, well, she's already been taken away, but he does not seem to recognize that, and he decides that he must... Follow the remains to the tomb by the sea where the family has taken his wife. Wait, now she's his wife? I thought they were children. When did that happen? Whenever Poe says it did. That's when it happened. That's all that matters. That's you don't all th- question him. You don't question the Poe. And so Poe says that, or the narrator, excuse me, like, it's really difficult to conflate the two. How am I doing that? He says he must go to the body and be with the body. And so at night he sneaks in the tomb and sleeps beside his wife. No. And yeah. So that's great that that happened. And read between the lines, consummate the marriage. Yeah. The the tomb is 
literally the bridal chamber and this innocent child who had no thought but to love him and be loved by me, he says, is now the perfect blank canvas for him to possess as he will. Has no voice. Cannot accept or reject the advances of the narrator. And thus, by not accepting, she never has to be defiled. It's not her responsibility. She's not even engaging. She's always going to be perfect. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Logical loopholes abound in this literature. (laughs) Okay, so... Corpsey brides are just the bestest because they can't tell you no. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. However, I think our bride in our story has a somewhat happier ending. There's a little more agency there. A little more agency. Even though she dies and she dies. Away okay, in look, chest. don't don't get dark. Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it. Don't get dark. I'm bringing us back up here. I'm trying to come out of this filth we've been in for the last however long we've been talking about literature ooze filth ooze bodies like perennials okay but i think the bride has a a better symbolic experience because she is entombed in the liminal state she is entombed in that moment when she is her own person that we were talking about earlier between being a child and being a wife and she's forever a bride in that one moment of autonomy that she seals herself away and never has to go back or forward. She remains that way for eternity. And I think that that in this, in this symbolic language that we've been discussing is a pretty okay way to be a dead bride. (laughs) I mean, is there a better outcome? Can you think of a better example of a bride getting sealed away? And like what? I've got one. What do you mean? I've got a real one. Not your literature. Fine, fact me. So in 2010, Michelina Lewandowska was engaged. She was ready to enter her liminal state and then go forth and be cured by her fiancé with his magic penis, Markin Kasprook. Oh, his penis does sound magical. But one day, her fiancé entered her home and tased her shit (laughs) he then bound and gagged her and put her in a cardboard box he and a friend taped the box shut drove her to the woods what the fuck is the friend doing is what i want to know i'm sorry dude bro what are you doing do Do not look do not ever help your buddy tape a woman in a box this is advice that will serve you well well, after that, they drive out to the woods and bury her head down under a like a half, vampire, yeah, under a half foot of dirt and leave her. Now it's good she was engaged because she uses her engagement ring to tear out of her restraints. She said, "I started to tear the box apart. I was focusing on the opening I just made. Soil was getting in. My face was getting dirty." I could see some black sky and leaves. I was so exhausted, she told the court. It took her a half hour to cut herself out of the cardboard coffin. And then she was able to flag someone down and get help. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Prosecutors say the fiancé had grown bored with her and wanted her out of the way so he could start a new romance with another woman. But his defense attorney argued 
that he was only trying to scare his fiancée. The lawyer reminded her in court that his client left two handholds on the box open so she could breathe. But Lewandowska said her former lover did not tape them up because he was just in a hurry to bury her. First of all, if your highlight, if your like, best defense is I left air holes in the box. Just trying to scare her. You need to quit. But secondly, this story is better. Why is that? Because it's about taking control. It's about not being locked away forever and allowing yourself to rot because you're not rescued. It's about finding meaning in your own existence and fighting for it. And I have to tell you, I think it's better because it's not just a story. You know, that's definitely not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.